Hear the word of the Lord. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see everybody this morning. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Uh, this is usually where I say something like, it's great to be here. Uh, I'm going to let you in on behind the curtain here for a little bit since we know each other so well. Um, there's some weeks where I would rather not be here. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, because of uh, my own insecurities, my own fears, and today is one such day <laughs> where, uh, yeah, it'd be nice to have a different job today, I think. Because um, I'm a little, uh, this is a tough week. Um, so earlier in the week, facing the reality of things like nuclear war, you know, that, that may not be as far off as we thought. Um, the threat of that seems to be hanging like a shadow now. Uh, but that's far away. I, I would imagine most of us don't know where North Korea is on a map, so it's hard to feel necessarily very threatened by that. Um, and then uh, two weeks ago, I was on vacation with my family. We went to the Bluegrass Mountains of Virginia, and we took a day trip to Charlottesville, Virginia, and walked around this beautiful town and heard about the wonderful, complicated, ugly life of Thomas Jefferson, had this beautiful day, and then to wake up to the news and see... <laughs> in the United States of America, white people, a lot of them in their 20s, uh, marching down the streets with torches and Nazi flags. Um, and what was part of what was most stunning about the events of this weekend for me is that they didn't even put hoods on, um, weren't even scared about someone seeing their face associated with this. One of their members drove a car through a pack of peaceful anti-protesters, killed somebody, sent 19 people to the hospital. Um, this is a much more present reality for us. It's here in our country. These people are here in our country. National figures are coming to their defense in our country. Um, our president has a hard time looking at that and saying anything other than we should think about the role we all have to play in this. In 2017... Which makes me wonder if this isn't as resolved of an issue as a lot of us like to pretend it is. Um, I know for me, um, I try to not like have any cards up here or like be hiding anything from you guys. Uh, and what's stunning to me is I have not received as much critique or pushback or concern about anything that I've talked about from up here like I have about racism uh, and the potential that there may be an issue in our country with racism. Uh, and that's concerning for me 
for a number of reasons. Um, one, convictionally, what we believe is that the fate of all people is to kneel down before a dark-skinned Middle Eastern Jewish man. And he will ask us, who do you say that I am? And I'm concerned a lot of us will say, you look like a terrorist to me. On one side of him, there will be death, separation, punishment. On the other, there will be a wedding party with a whole bunch of people that don't look like us, who don't speak English. Um, And is that, I'm concerned as one of the pastors here that many of us will look at that room and it will be uncomfortable for us. And I I guess what is maybe troubling for me, um, if if white supremacists with Nazi flags doing the the Sig Heil salute in a major U.S. city isn't enough evidence that there are still racial issues in our country, I'm not sure what it will take to convince us that this is an issue. Uh, And so I kind of want to talk, I guess a lot of us, we, ha- we have issues that we're maybe not even aware that we have or ones that we aren't really excited to face. It's a lot easier to look over and say, North Korea, these awful people over there, this horrible regime that's going to destroy the world. It's a lot easier to do that than perhaps look at us and say, what's wrong with me? What's sideways about me? How am I participating? And I, I, I'm so grateful for Justin and his team and that prayer they had that can say things like, you know, racism isn't just a cultural issue, it's sin, and it's a power that Satan uses to divide people. We shouldn't have to quibble over motivations or, I don't know, historical precedent to look at what happened in Charlottesville and say that's evil, and that's sinful. And any system that says one kind of person is better than another kind of person, to even have a moment's worth of consideration that that could be honoring to the Lord, uh, is, is just beyond me. Uh, It is evil, it is wicked, it is satanic, and we as the church must not be silent about it. But I don't know that us just standing here saying that over there in Charlottesville is so bad because we're so good. You know, the guy who ran his car into those people was from Ohio. That's not Indiana, but it's a lot closer than Virginia. It was a 20-year-old college student from Ohio. So how do we look, how do we discover those things? How do we see what's lurking beneath the surface? How do we discover maybe what is the part that I've played, whether uh, intentionally or unintentionally, in, in perpetuating this kind of system? Um, and I don't, you know, I don't have notes on any of the stuff I'm talking about right now, so maybe that explains what, your confusion. Um, but one thing that I've been hearing in our church a lot lately is something like, I'm concerned that we're more concerned about race than the gospel. Um, as if these are inseparable issues. Um, Again, the fate of all humanity is every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping and feasting with the Lord. And if we allow systems that separate people this way, we are empowering, we are uh, permitting, we are participating in a system that is inherently anti-gospel. You cannot believe in any kind of racial system and the gospel at the same time. Or as 1 John 1 puts it, anyone who hates their brother walks in darkness. Or as Jesus said, how can you say you love God while you hate your brother? Um, So 
I want to come at this maybe in a less offensive way or a less uh, trigger potential way or, or whatever um, and talk about some of my own, my own journey through therapy. Anybody ever go to therapy? Be quiet. <laughs> yeah, my show of silence, who's been through therapy? <laughs> right. I have, and I just think you should go, okay? Um, it's, like, it's like getting your oil changed. Maybe you don't even know what you talk about. Those guys know how to figure you out. Um, so, uh, and they help you see things that maybe you're not willing to see, uh, or maybe you're too threatened to see. So a few years ago, I began my journey with a counselor. Um, I, was, I was pulling somewhere between 50 and 60 hours a week as an intern at Sojourn, um, which was too much. I was a full-time seminary student, um, taking anywhere from 18 to 24 credit hours. If you went to seminary, you know what that's like. Um, I was newly married. Uh, surprise, surprise. Um, I wasn't that fun to be married to at the time. Um, it was the first time life was really difficult for me. And I don't mean in terms of suffering or, or loss, but like the load was too heavy. Uh, it felt like it was far too much. I was constantly overwhelmed, constantly exhausted, uh, confused. I was insecure in my marriage. Um, part of the confusion too came from the fact that I was doing all of these things for God, right? I, I was working so hard at church for God, and I was studying so hard for God. Um, I was failing in my marriage for God, I guess, right? Like, that's one of those things that I didn't really want to think about or talk about. Um, and so, you know, I paid a guy in his 60s um, essentially to let me have an emotional breakdown in front of him. And so I just started vomiting all of this stuff at him. And uh, he said something to me that um, simultaneously made me furious and at, at the same time resonated deeply with the core of who I was. And so I got it up on the screen. This is what he said to me after all of this breakdown. He said, Jonah, whatever you're doing, the health of your soul is more important. He said it real slow. Remember notice how people in their 60s can talk slow and people in their 30s can't? Whatever you're doing, the health of your soul is more important. Now, clearly this is ridiculous, right? Uh... I mean, I had to figure out how to pay for school. My marriage was on the rocks. I had, I had to prove myself at church so I could get a job. Hello. Sorry. And maybe what's more, there were lost people that needed saved, right? Like we got to tell people about Jesus. That's what I'm here for. I hemmed and hawed and I argued with him which is funny, like whenever you're in your late 20s and your 30s and you're arguing with someone who's 30 years older than you, it doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong. But just you young people, take a moment and consider they've been alive twice as long as you. They've probably been a Christian longer than you've been alive. So just be slow to dismiss it right out of hand. Uh, I was dismissing it. And so he just said, hey, just go pay attention to the life of Jesus. Why don't you just go look at the life of Jesus? So like a, like a good seminary student, um, I whipped open my Bible, and I set out to prove him wrong, right? Um, so in, in some ways, these are just reflections that I've had over the last six or seven years since I started meeting this guy.
One of the lies that I believed that blinded me to what was going on inside of me was that I was special um, in the sense that no one was busy like I was busy. Um, so just, again, remember, I had no children. I didn't have a job, really. Um, I was an intern at a church, and I was in school full-time, and no one has ever known what it's like to be busy the way I am, right? Right? As I, I came to the Bible, uh, I feel as though my eyes were opened to how busy God is. Uh, and there's some kind of abstract ways. You know, before, uh, here's a $10 seminary concept for you. God is the only non-contingent being in the universe. What that means is he doesn't need anything. He's not dependent on anything. He doesn't have to pull over on a road trip for a snack. Uh, Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God which is a real condensed, beautiful way of saying God existed before anything else existed. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, so everything else, we have the system where God creates it, and everything is dependent one way or the other on God. Uh, Christianity doesn't say God just, he got the ball rolling, and he stays intimately involved, maintaining, orchestrating. And essentially, the Old Testament is the story of God wooing his people, pursuing them. He's always up to something. He's always orchestrating something. He's always time in the history of humanity, in the history of time, where God has not maintaining molecules or managing the affairs of human beings. Modeled rest for us. On the seventh day, God took a break. Sure, God rested, and and not only did He rest, but then He said, "If you're going to be my work, and you will rest, you'll work for six days, and you will take one out of slavery." It, over and over, he's saying, hey, remember, I'm God, and I rested on the... That's how crazy that would have been to a group of slaves. You get a day off. What do you mean a day off? Well, because you're my people, because you're where you won't work. Now, that's fine and good. That's theological. Um, the New Testament is when I really started getting in. No human being has ever been in demand like Jesus was. It's Jesus that's holding creation together. All things were made by him, folds all things together. If you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, you're atoms together, even in your disbelief, right? It's kind of cool. Like, he's still holding on, right? He's managing something. And, and then on the other, always coming to him, needing something. Have you noticed that with Jesus, and it's like, man, busy couple of weeks. How are you, Jesus? So I... I I rented this cabin for you so you could go to made you this meal because I know how tired. You don't see any of that. You see dinner at my house. Jesus, can you answer this question for me? The man is in demand. And so think about the story that we just read. And we looked at it last week too. Out of the desert being tempted by Satan, which I imagine was wild. And immediately people start asking him for stuff. And word gets out. Uh, verse 32, that evening after brought to Jesus, the whole town gathered at the door to watch. Operation of these people. Some random dude. How desperate do you have to be for healing to come to somebody like that? Hopeless does your condition have to be? Have you ever seen a demon-possessed person? These aren't common cold issues. They're at the end of their rope and hope that this man, Jesus, can do something about it. Stories like more than Jesus. I wasn't busier than Jesus. I've never had people depend on me like they depend on him. You do. But 
stressed. He wasn't late. He wasn't anxious. Or I began seeing a very uncomfortable pattern in the life of Jesus. I think most of us have the problem of priorities. Priority to us right now. One of the pushbacks I've gotten when we talk about why are we bringing up this in church and not that? Somewhere we've bought into this lie that we can be about it all if we just tried a little bit more. And, and so everything in our career, better and done quicker. I, I was in a meeting a couple years, real organization, you have agendas for your meetings, and then we ranked the priorities. There was like seven things on the list, and everything was priority one. And possible if words still mean something, right? Not everything can be the top. Let's think about this from a couple of different directions. Um, again, God doesn't need creator, which means we are the creature. One of the gifts of being limitation. Um, everything cannot depend on God us like it does others. Uh, you are here, and you're not at one of the other great churches. You place at one time. You have one body. You have one uh, set and brain. You can't listen to seven albums at once. You can't go to have to sleep. You ever think about how much time of your life you spend sleeping? And you can only get so much done. So em- embracing an ordinary is embracing the fact that we have limitations. You can't do it all. Uh, my childhood marine biologist, architect, firefighter, right? You just can't do future. Uh, and priorities require us to acknowledge our limitations. Get out of debt, or you can put a new TV on your credit card. But, but you can't really do both. Uh, you can be a ballerina or an architect. You can marry one person. And by saying yes to marrying that person, you're saying no to every other person. To say yes to something means we're saying no to a whole bunch of other things. And if everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. And I wonder if that's why some of us live these confused, anxious lives, constantly overwhelmed, constantly guilty. Let's think about it another way. A God comes and he assumes our humanity in Jesus, which means he becomes a human, fully human. You want me to do that thing? It's here if we need it. Someone raise their hand if the crackling gets too bad for you. I'm just going to keep going. I'm a little, I'm a little turnt right now. Um, God assumes our humanity in Jesus, which means he comes and takes it on himself. He lives a fully human life. And part of the mission of Jesus was to show us this is what a human life looks like. If you want to know what a human being should be, look at the life of Jesus. And what we see in Jesus is he prioritized his own health over service to others, over and over and over again. Nothing had primacy in the life of Jesus, like his own inner life. For Jesus, much to my dismay, nothing was as important as the health of his own soul. Look at verse 35. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. You see this over and over and over again. Uh, When Jesus performs a huge miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, he he goes away. When he's preparing for times of great trial, like his own death, he goes away. And it says here, before daybreak, he went away. The the original language is a lot more intense, a, a lot more emphatic. Before the sun was up, while it was still dark, very early in the morning. How long was he out? Well, just think about this for a second. Uh, his buddies had to wake up. How long did it take them to find out that Jesus wasn't in his room? 
How long did it take them to go and find Jesus? He didn't get up at like 6.15 and his buddies find him at 6.30, in my opinion. Got up before dawn and it took them hours to find Jesus. And this word here for prayer is interesting too. It's, it's not the word used elsewhere, talking about making a request as if Jesus is sitting there saying, give me this and give me this and do this and do this for me. It's more a posture of, of piety. He's putting himself in the presence of God. He's soaking in the presence of God for hours. And some want to argue that Jesus is doing this so he can hype up for his next mission, right? So he can get excited. We rest so we can go back to work. But look at what Jesus does here. His disciples say everyone is looking for him. And he says, let's go someplace else. Everyone is looking for you, Jesus. I got to go preach somewhere else. I'm not going to do any more miracles. And just try to imagine if you're one of the townspeople waiting on Jesus. This is the stuff that really started getting me uncomfortable. Think of the desperation of people coming to Jesus. The doctors have nothing left to do. There's nothing left to say. And here we are. Maybe Jesus can heal me. Maybe Jesus can heal my boy. What would it have been like to be the townsperson that morning filled with such hope that Jesus might heal you or your wife or your son and to find out that Jesus is done healing for the day? It's, it's not just that he's saying, I'm not going to heal. He went away. For Jesus, nothing was as important as his own communion with the Father. The busier he was, the more he prayed. The busier he was, the more time he spent off by himself. The more the people demanded of him, the more he got away. He said yes to prayer, to ordinary means of resting in and enjoying God. And this often meant he said no to the crowds of desperate, needy people. Later in his ministry, Jesus will put it point blank to his disciples. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? I remember reading that years ago and hearing the voice of my counselor, and he was kind of laughing at me in my mind. I heard his voice saying, Jonah, whatever you're doing, the health of your soul is more important. It's your most prized possession. All of your life flows from it. What's God's invitation for us? What do we do with something like this? One thing that I feel like we've lost, uh, one of the sad consequences of our rejection of ordinary Christianity, seeing the goodness of ordinary everyday life, is that we've forgotten God's mission isn't just about them out there. God's mission isn't just for those people or to deal with those things over there or just to go be with those people over in Charlottesville or whatever. We've forgotten that we are God's mission too. You are God's mission. And God's mission is not simply getting us to confess Jesus is Lord and move on to a life of trying to convince other people that Jesus is Lord. Is that part of it? Yeah, it's part of it. But Christianity isn't some, simply believing something is true and trying to convince other people it's true. If that's how you've lived your Christian life, I'm going to guess that 
deep down in there, you're exhausted and you're anxious and you're guilty. And you're wondering, does this really work? But what's easier to do? The thing that we've always done or to start looking internally? What is it about looking at ourselves that feels so threatening and terrifying? And so we'll we'll be about those issues over there, those people over there, and that situation over there. Christianity is about us becoming fully human in Christ. It's about us being the truest version of who God made us to be and living into that. Jesus is redeeming and reorienting all of our life around God. And I just can't help but wonder if we as a church, have we forgotten how much God loves us? And not just us, because that's even a little bit more abstract. Have you forgotten how much God loves you? Have you forgotten the promises of the scriptures that say he rejoices over you with singing? God doesn't simply want to use you. He wants to know you. God doesn't simply want you to follow him. He wants you to allow him to heal you. So what does that mean? How do we do that? What might this look like? I just wonder, I wonder what our churches would be like if we prioritized the health of our own souls. If we believed that idea that whatever we're doing, the health of our own soul is more important. One of the first things I think this will mean that we have to do is learn to start saying no to the soul stealers. The, the things in our life that make us feel like life with God isn't true or God's promises to us aren't true. What is that for you? I don't really know. Go to a community group and figure that out in community with other people. I know in our church, oftentimes it's the feeling that you have to do everything at the church. You have to say yes to everything, serve in every way, commit to everything, even though it's left you exhausted and angry and bitter after five, six, seven, eight, nine years. If our obedience to God leaves us feeling profoundly unloved by God, I'm, I would encourage you to consider you've gone sideways there. For many of us, our finances are huge soul stealers. You know, Jesus talked about money more than anything else in his ministry. And I wonder if people said to him, I'm worried that you think more about money than the gospel. Our money is a clear indication of what our priorities really are. And what matters to us? Maybe you feel guilty this morning because you don't give and you can't imagine how. I, I, I loved so much of what we said in the liturgy, but just be reminded, God is a non-contingent being. You realize God doesn't need your money, but he talks about it and asks for it over and over again. What's, what might that be about? Could that have more to do with the fact that your money is stealing your own soul than God is up there panicking about how to make his mission move forward? Maybe you're drowning in debt and you can't see a way out. We, Bobby put together this little booklet, your personal finance plan. Uh, you should have all gotten one. And I just encourage you guys to spend some time with that thing, especially if you're one of those people that feel like you're drowning in money. How am I going to get ready for retirement? I'm so far behind. How am I going to get around on these student loans? What are we going to do? And, and the goal, like, we don't want you to step into that so that giving goes up at the church or so that we can, whatever, do bathrooms over in the kids' wing once these bathrooms are done or something like that. It's because... For so many of us, our finances are stealing our souls. They're robbing us of our joy in God, and it doesn't have to be that way. 
Prioritizing the health of our souls requires us to know what kills our souls. And, you know, when I look at those white supremacists over there, so many of them look like such scared little kids to me. How anyone can read the Bible and feel like any one race is superior to another race, that to me is just evidence of deep brokenness. And, and I wonder what would happen if we started looking internally and not just externally. What are we so afraid of? And maybe you're not a white supremacist, okay? But you're still scared, you're still hurt, you're still broken. What, where does that come from? How does that happen? What's going on there? Learn what those are for you and begin saying no. This is what it means to follow the pattern of Jesus. And it often feels unnatural to us, even wrong. So we have to continually return to the model of Jesus. What would it have been like to be the next person in line for healing when Jesus said he was done for the day? Jesus said no to situations far more demanding and allegedly far more serious than most of us will have to say no to. But Jesus didn't simply say no. He was saying yes to something else for the sake of his soul. He was saying yes to an unhurried pace, yes to being present to the people around him, to extended times of prayer. Fundamentally, he was saying yes to his experience of life with God, of communion with God. Maybe this year you'll become a morning person. Bum, 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 right? Maybe you have to go to bed a little bit earlier so you can wake up a little bit earlier. And, you know, mercy. Keep asking God for things. That's not wrong or bad. But how much time in prayer are you soaking in God, learning how to just be with him? Prayer is fundamentally an act of reorientation. It's really hard to hate somebody you're praying for. Why is that? Your heart turns to God, and you can't help but realize how much God loves that person too. It's very difficult to hate somebody that you're praying for. Centering our lives once again on God, who he is, what he's done, what he promises, this is the fundamental act of prayer. This is what we're doing in prayer, not just coming to God with a list of things to do, and yet, uh, sorry, I'm just laughing at myself up here in my head. Uh, how do you feel about silence or quiet? What happens when you get quiet? What are the memories that come up? What are the fears that come up? And so what do most of us do? We just get busy and we just do more and we drown all of that out. But do you know that you are God's mission? that those are things he wants to heal in you. Those are places in your heart that he wants to reorient you. And I get it, this is terrifying. Because um, what will be out there? What will you find? What is the brokenness, the hurt, the sin that you've been running from for so long? And God, maybe even this morning, is saying, no more. No more are you going to be able to run from that and hide from that. Uh, our schools of spiritual formation, we've got them for men and women. The whole point of this is to help you learn how to do this how to come to God with a posture of willingness, how to experience those times of prayer, how to see what's going on underneath you so that even the deepest parts of you can be transformed into the image of Christ. Uh, the men's school starting in a couple weeks. The ladies have a book study with like 8,000 women in it right now. So we'll give signups for that. But if you're a dude and you're like, I'm angry and I don't know why, or I'm scared all the time and I don't know why, or I feel like the way I've been doing Christianity, it's just not working anymore, Come and experience what this is. We're trying to be like Jesus, so we get up early, right? 6 a.m., 
You got to want it, people. Okay, this isn't to come and be like, I'm just going to check it out. Like, you're going to have hard questions asked. You're going to be asked to do tough stuff. You're going to have to face things that maybe you don't want to face. But this is what it takes to experience God and be transformed by him. Just sign, you can sign up on a Connect card. Just write, I want to do that thing he talked about. And it starts September 14th, 6 a.m. Come, the ladies will start in a couple months, and, and we'll let you know. Uh, what will it look like for you fundamentally to follow this pattern of Jesus where your life is structured on you reorienting yourself around who God is and what he's done and what's good, what's true, what's beautiful? What will it look like for you to prioritize the health of your soul? I think ultimately this is going to require us to trust the provision of Jesus. You, when you say no to things, especially good things in the church, it's fundamentally an act of trust that actually God will build his church. When you can't meet a need for a friend or you just have to realize, I'm a constant disappointment to people because there's only one me and there's only so much time I have but I will trust that God will keep caring for them. He'll keep meeting for them. Fundamentally, we need to learn to trust that the universe will keep running without us. We have to trust that you matter to God and that you are still part of his mission. Maybe what we need to trust is that his grace frees us from having to prove anything by our busyness, to be impressive or put forth an impressive image by all of our accomplishments. Because if the gospel is true... Jesus has set us free from that. There's no condemnation for us anymore. There's no sin hanging over our heads anymore. We have nothing to prove and no one to impress and a God who's never late, whose love never runs out, whose faithfulness never ends, and we can trust that. So communion, like prayer, is a time of reorientation. It's an invitation for us to believe that we're safe so we can go on a journey inward and see what's lurking under there, whether it be racism or, or just insecurity that we're not good enough, whatever it might be. We come to communion to be centered, to be grounded, and have our hearts turned towards God, remembering we're loved by him, we belong to him, and we can follow him. It's a place where we come to remember that whatever we're doing, the health of our soul is more important. So, We remember that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread. He broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken. I love the specificity of it. Broken for you. Broken for you. Not broken for, like, the sins of the world in this abstract sense, but for you, for out of his particular love, for you. His body was broken for you, for your hurts, for your wounds, for your baggage, for your sin, for the sins of whatever, white supremacy, for the sins of greed, for the sins of gluttony, for the sins of anger, for the sins of impatience, on and on it could go. His body was broken for you. And so we eat this and remember what he's done for us. And after the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, drink this and remember my blood shed for you. This is what seals your relationship with God. Do you realize what scandalous freedom this is? This is what makes you right with God. My blood shed for you not your performance. It's not your achievement. It's not how you conquered depression or how you got all these promotions. It's not how much money you made. It's not the family you came from. It's not how much better of a job you're doing with your kids than your parents did with you. It's not how you rescued this marriage out of the dust. What makes us safe with God is the blood of Christ shed for us. And it's one way God shows us that the health of our soul is more important than anything else that we're doing. If you're here and you're not a Christian, 
I hope you've gotten a taste of God's incredible love for you. And maybe your imagination is stirred a little bit of, of what this place could be, what the church could be, uh, a place where our guard is down, where the masks are down, where we look different and talk different, but we love one another because we're united through the blood of Christ. Uh, you're welcome in this family. You can come. Uh, and we say, how do you do that? Trust Jesus. We're all trying to do it too. So the invitation for you, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, is to trust him this morning. If, if you're a Christian, I would just encourage you, take a moment and consider what keeps me from investing in my own soul. What is hard for me to believe about this? Ask the Spirit to show you maybe the things you're trying to hide even from yourself and then come forward as an act of faith that God loves you and he's not done with you. Our tradition is to rip off a piece of bread and you can dip it in wine or juice. Uh, the wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it and we've got gluten-free elements to my left and your right. I'll pray for us and then uh, Christians, you can come forward as you're ready.